Hello, podcast land. Uh, Welcome back to Tour Guide Tell All. Uh, We are your friendly neighborhood tour guides turned podcast hosts, bringing to you the interesting, scandalous, spicy, fascinating political history, Washington, D.C. history, scandalous history. We are doing all sort of history fun things. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Rebecca, and I'm joined by... Oh, Oh, sorry. And I'm joined by... (laughs) Becca. And we are the Rebecca's. And we are back with another episode. We are in the middle of February. It is still a little chilly. That's unfortunate, but we have some hot history, so that's good. Uh, We are in the middle of Black History Month, and so we are talking about an amazing woman, uh, African-American woman. We're going to talk about Barbara Jordan today, so I'm very excited. Before that, two quick housekeeping notes. Uh, One housekeeping note I want to mention, you hear Becca and me all the time. I would just like to give a brief shout out to the other two people in our pod. Candon does our admin work and Dan does a lot of our sound work and they don't get a lot of credit and they're amazing. So I just would like to shout them out really quickly because they literally make us sound intelligent and erudite and really great. The other thing I would like to mention is we're trying to do a sort of pledge drive. Uh, We want to do a series about first ladies. We've never done a full length treatment of uh, an American first lady. And so we've decided to team that up with a drive for new patrons. So if you're listening out there and you want to become a patron, now is the exact right time. Uh, When we get a certain number of patrons at any level, we are going to do a five episode first ladies series in addition to our regular episodes we're going to let the patrons vote on what first ladies they would like to hear from so if you want to join into podcast land and patronage uh you can pick which first lady and again we want to do all the first ladies so you got your abigail adams and your jackie kennedys but we're talking like we want to do some francis cleveland and harriet lane harriet lane we want to do a little grace coolidge some betty ford so think about who your favorite first lady is become a patron. We love you guys. That's our push currently. But today we're here to talk about a true original, a Texan like Becca. She's like Becca in both of those things (laughs) named Barbara Jordan. So Becca. Yeah. So when we were kicking around initial ideas for this pod of like who we'd want to talk about. Barbara Jordan was someone who had really come to my mind. And then, you know, she sort of had gotten shuffled in and out of would we do her, not do her. Then when we were circling around to Black History Month, I was like, we have to really do Barbara Jordan. And I think it's so timely to do Barbara Jordan as well, because she is such an original She is a Texan, a Houstonian, like myself, like Beyonce, so she's really wonderful. She's been called the Jackie Robinson of politics, and that's not really like hyperbole. It's very hard not to just list her by all of her firsts, because she's the first to do a lot of things. She's the first woman to do a lot of things. She's the first person of color to do a lot of things. She's the first black woman to do a lot of things, so it's like she's going to be 100 Uh, and one first. But as I was digging in to really flesh out our outline for this episode, I was just blown away reading press coverage of her because it's fascinating how much in a short, relatively short political career, she is so admired. She's so celebrated. She is called a genius. She's called a hero, the salvation of American politics. She was called the best politician of the century. 
But also she faced incredible criticism from all sides, which is not surprising because she was a black woman in politics. So uh, she's just so interesting to me and I'm really excited for us to dig in. And I think there's some interesting sort of parallels and some overlap to some of the things we've talked about in previous episodes. Rebecca, when did you first hear about Barbara Jordan? Because for me growing up, she was just a very iconic Texas figure. So I'm fascinated for like non-Texans. Where did you first intersect with her? You know, I don't know. Um, I've been trying to think about that. I'm sure that I picked her up at some point reading about Watergate. I feel like for almost everybody, it's that like iconic speech in 1974 during the Watergate hearings. And I'm sure that that's kind of where I first sort of heard about her. But she's kind of been in the background for a long time. I think, didn't President Clinton speak at her funeral? Like, I feel like... Yeah, that's, and I'm old enough to remember that because <laughs> I'm an old person. Uh, I knew that her and Ann Richards were tight as well. And I'll, that's more, I'll talk about that more later. But Ann Richards was a big, I'm a big fan of Ann Richards. One of my greatest personal yes. heroes, Ann Richards. So Barbara Jordan is born in Houston in 1936. She's from an area of Houston called the Fifth Ward, which is, if you know a little about Houston, it's divided up into wards. The Fifth Ward is a largely black community. One of the things that's really interesting and I think really ties into why Barbara Jordan hits at the right moment in Texas politics is the Fifth Ward in particular had really had a huge migration of rural blacks, blacks from from Louisiana and other parts of kind of the Gulf Coast pouring into Houston from the 1940s to the 1970s. The population there of African-Americans quadruples in 30 years. And at the time that Barbara Jordan is at the peak of politics, 1960s and 1970s, it has the largest black population in the United States. So we're talking bigger than New Orleans, bigger than Atlanta, anywhere else that you think of as sort of centers of black communities. This fifth ward in Houston and Houston in general was bigger. So she comes from this really burgeoning, booming black community. And it is sort of a mix. It's a mix socioeconomically. And she comes from pretty modest means. Her father is a minister. So not too surprising. She grows up in the church. She will join him in preaching and singing. So she kind of grows up immediately comfortable in front of a crowd. She has no fear of public speaking or getting in front. The word she's most described as, as a young person, is an original. She is just not quite like anyone else. She's just Barbara. Uh, And anyone who knew her, that's just kind of how they described her. She does come from a prestigious background politically, as it were. Her great-grandfather, Edward Patton, served in the Texas House of Representatives. He was one of the last black men to serve in that body, and he served from 1891 to 1893. So if you listen to our episode last week, was that last week? Or week? Yeah, last week. Sorry, weeks are meaningless to me at this point. Our episode last week talking about the first black congressman, um, you understand, right, what's going on here. He, uh, Edward Patton, Barbara Jordan's great-grandfather, was brought in in that sort of reconstruction wave, and yet his time is going to end as that progress regresses. Barbara Jordan attends Phyllis Wheatley High School, um, which was also the high school of George Foreman the boxer and creator of the George Foreman Grill, and one of my all-time most favorite musicians, Archie Bell of Archie Bell and the Drells, who have a great song called Tighten Up, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention it on this podcast. (laughs) Um, So she she, uh, went to Phyllis Wheatley High School, which produced a lot of really important 
African-Americans in Texas, uh, a lot of important lawyers and judges and, and other politicians. So it was sort of this breeding ground. There was a lot of pride in the school of producing excellent students. And she really thought that she was going to be a music teacher. That's like what her dad wanted her to be. That seemed like a very respectable career path for a young woman in this era. But she, as a high school junior, is going to attend a speech given by a woman named Edith Sampson, who I didn't know all that much about initially, but it was really interesting to sort of dig in. Edith Sampson is a black lawyer and judge. She was from Chicago. She would ultimately be the first black delegate to the United Nations. She traveled all around the world in the 1970s and 80s, basically speaking about her experience in the U.S. as a black woman. And she was sent to do this to basically counteract Soviet propaganda. The USSR was using the United States treatment of its black citizens to make the United States look bad. And to be fair, there were a lot of things to criticize about the way in which this country has treated its citizens of color. And what's really remarkable about Edith Sampson is she doesn't shy away from the reality of life in the United States. She doesn't deny any of the claims, but she essentially says, I would rather be a Negro in America than a citizen in any other land. And she uses her knowledge of law and the judicial system to sort of fight for change on a judicial level and on a legislative level. Um, she does become a little more radicalized later in her life, becoming a little bit more of a radical civil rights activist, but she was a great inspiration to many and particularly to Barbara Jordan. Barbara Jordan sees this woman speak and she's like, I'm going to be like her. I'm going to be a lawyer. So Barbara Jordan graduates at 16 from high school and decides she's going to go to college. And she wants to go to what she thinks is the best college in the state of Texas, University of Texas in Austin. And she can't go because it's, you know, the 1950s at this point. Yeah, just about the night. It's 1950s. And, you know, she's a black woman. So UT in Austin is segregated. And she wasn't accepted, so she instead went to Texas Southern University. Texas Southern University, TSU, is in Houston. It's a historically black college and university. It has produced just an incredible number of really important alumni. So she starts college at TSU at 16, so that's crazy to me. She knows immediately, like, she wants to be a lawyer, a politician. This is like her career path. So she's going to major in history, poli-sci, all the important stuff, and she's going to go into debate. She is going to be a national championship debater. She is extremely gifted at debate. She's the only woman on her debate team. She's also one of a handful of underclassmen on the debate team. So she like jumps in right away. Their TSU debate team is incredible when she's on it. They will beat Ivy League competitor, so they'll be Harvard, they'll be Yale. She really kind of makes a name for herself through her time in debate. She's also a member of Delta Sigma Delta, which was founded at Howard University in 1913. I was reading all about Delta Sigma Delta this morning just because of a Facebook post, uh, and I got into this deep dive of all of these incredible people who had been Delta Sigma Delta alumni. Medgar Evers' wife was an alumni of Delta Sigma Delta. So is Renee Elise Goldsberry, who is in Hamilton and also uh, from Houston, so Houston Connections. A lot of other really incredible, important women. Mary Church Terrell was an honorary member, as was Mary McLeod Bethune. So um, Barbara Jordan becomes a member of this pretty elite African-American sorority. She graduates with honors from TSU, you know, magna cum laude, all that good stuff. And she decides she's going to go to law school. And she goes to Boston University School of Law, which is kind of crazy to me because she has, up to this point in her life, never left Texas. She's only ever really been in Houston and its surrounding environs. And she's living in Texas at the peak of Jim Crow. And so she leaves 
to go to Boston. And it's a very different experience for her, a very eye-opening experience for her. So she goes to Boston University School of Law. She is the only woman in her law class. So it goes without saying, the only woman of color. And she's one of only a handful of African-American students in the law school in general. So she definitely stands out. She graduates from law school in 1959, and one of my favorite things is she is accused in the Texas press later in her career for having picked up a bit of Bostonian accent. She was said to have a JFK-esque cadence in her speech. She claimed that she only ever talked like Barbara Jordan, but if you listen to her talk, you can pick up a little bit of that like exaggerated vowel you start to get when you spend too much time in New England. Wow. Wow, too much time. Uh, so when we, you decided we should do this pod, I was like, okay, Barbara Jordan. Like, I knew you had a, obviously, you're from Houston. You had a connection. I didn't realize I did, too. I went to Boston University. So she went to their law school, and I went to their undergrad. But obviously not at the same time. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I didn't realize I had a Barbara Jordan connection either. Dr. King went to uh, BU as well. So we got, you know, some. That's pretty, pretty notable alumni. Pretty okay, Yeah. <laughs> Um, I also think, you know, if you listen to Barbara Jordan talk, she doesn't sound like necessarily what you think a Texas politician will sound like. But I get this all the time. People say I don't sound like I'm from Texas. People have an idea of what the Texas dialect is. But actually, Texas is a really big state with a lot of dialects within it, especially when you have this big migration of people pouring in from rural areas and other areas. And then you have people like Barbara Jordan and many other Texans who are going away for college or work and then coming back and you get this blend, especially in the cities. So that's what Barbara Jordan does, though. She goes away for law school, but she basically comes right back. So this is her only real foray out of Texas for a permanent residence is for law school. She comes back in 1960. She sets up a law practice in Houston, and she becomes a lawyer and sets up this practice basically because she wants to be a politician. She makes no bones about her ambitions, which I admire greatly, but you can imagine as a woman, as a black woman, that is immediately going to rub some people the wrong way, and she's going to be criticized her whole career for being ambitious which is not a bad thing. It's something we almost never accuse men of. I was just going to say, you never hear a man being accused of being too ambitious. So she starts this law practice, and this is, you know, 1960. Houston is essentially a segregated city, as is most of Texas. Um, so there are not a lot of black politicians. There are aldermen and some kind of key people who sort of, you know, they work with the big guys, but nobody is running for office. So she runs, and she runs several times to lose. She runs for the state house, and she has two six unsuccessful runs. And she kind of realizes, you know what, she's not going to win just based on black voters. That's not going to work for her. What fascinated me when I read about her is that in this moment after she's lost a couple of times, she thinks that, oh, if I want to be a politician, I might have to leave Texas. And she thinks about, hey, okay, well, where else can I go? And then she's like, no, 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 I'm a Texan. This is my home. These are the people that I come from. These are who I want to represent. And so she kind of has to like think through how do I sort of broaden this coalition and make this happen for me? Yeah, yeah, exactly. She definitely, and you will we'll touch on this throughout, but she really is so tied to her identity as a Texan. That is who she is, that she doesn't want to have to go somewhere else. Sure, she might have better luck if she went somewhere in New England or the Mid-Atlantic, but she wants to be a politician in Texas in her community. She says, it was clear then that if I wanted to win, I had to pursue the moneyed and politically influential interests either to support me 
or remain neutral, which is one of my favorite parts of this. And this is the thing you're not supposed to say as a politician. You're not supposed to say, if I want to win, I need to pursue money and people who are influential. But it's true. It is the truth of politics. It always has been. It probably always will be. It is what it is. And she isn't afraid to say it. That she, given the way things are in Texas in the 1960s, she cannot win without money, which means oil and gas. And she cannot win without some moderate Democrats or without some middle-of-the-road white politicians supporting her. And that's what she does. She moves to the middle, as it were. She definitely broadens her network. She starts connecting with people who she wouldn't have normally have thought to connect with. And it works for her. She's going to win a seat in the state Senate in 1966. Now, this is a huge deal. She is the first black state senator in Texas since 1883. And she is the first black woman, period, ever. Now, she doesn't just do this alone on kind of the back of her own skill, which is, is sizable, but she is aided by the Civil Rights Act, of the, the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. This is huge. It's going to enfranchise a lot more voters of color, and they're going to be able to exercise that right to vote. So that's going to be a big influence for Barbara Jordan. Again, she's kind of hitting at the right time in history. The other thing that's really helpful is the Supreme Court had mandated redistricting in places like Texas. So all of a sudden, a new district essentially opened up that had a much more racial balance to its citizenship and to the voters. And so this is where she benefits from and why these things are important, why we need things like the Voting Rights Act of 1965, because it allows for more voices to be heard. she goes to the Texas State Senate and she sticks out like a sore thumb. One of her colleagues said that she was so gracious and charming, she literally compelled even the biggest racists to be gracious and charming too. So she had to kind of go in and deal with people who were outwardly hostile to her, let alone those who were subtly hostile, and had to just kind of carry herself. And because she's a woman of ambition, she doesn't want her career to end here, so she knows she has to make friends with these guys. And there was a tradition in the Texas sort of state legislature for a big welcome ball for all the new state senators. And there was actual concern about inviting her, not just because she was a black woman, but they feared that she would bring a date and then there would be a black man there. And then what if he wanted to dance with other people's wives? What if she wanted to dance? What if there was intermixed dancing? What if they didn't know the rules of polite society? And she went to this thing and she was just as nice as charming as she could be. She came without a date to soften her entry into this group and she played the game. She played the game with them and she was as nice as could be. On the other hand too, she had a really body sense of humor and that also won her over with the men of Texas politics. There were some men who said with other women, you had to be careful, but with her, you could give the jokes cause she would roll with it. So she very quickly learned how to play the game and made herself really popular in the state Senate. She also gets a very prominent and well-placed patron. She attracts the notice of no less than the president of the United States himself. Lyndon Johnson, famously a Texan, keeps a very close eye on his home state. And he really sees Barbara Jordan in the Texas Statehouse 
uh, and encourages her to continue up the chain and is going to be very influential in her career. He pays attention to her and he really publicly will state that he sees her as one of the heirs to his legacy. Both had a similarly body sense of humor, so I'm imagining they kind of got along pretty well but Lyndon Johnson sort of takes an interest in her which I can only imagine if you're like a state senator from Texas that must be a pretty big endorsement like that's a big deal and she's so I thought this was super cool she charms everybody so much that she in 1972 she gets to serve as the acting Texas governor for one day governor for the day it's a beloved I don't know if other states do this it's like a beloved tradition Um, where you sort of pick a member of your state legislature and they get to be governor for the day. So she gets chosen and actually eight state senators that were ahead of her in seniority for this particular honor stepped aside so she could do it. And it's all very ceremonial. You get a big, you know, you get a big ceremony and to do and you give a speech and there's all this stuff. But she got to do it, which makes her in, as Rebecca would say, in our year of the Lord 2021, the only black woman to have ever been governor of Texas even for a day. Do you get to sleep in the mansion? That's what I want to know. Like, <laughs> I'd run around so. at night and, like, TP. I'd be like, yeah, I'd get all the It's foods. just for a day. Oh, okay. um, she's very, very funny, and that's part of why uh, they love her. Two quick antidotes that I found that I just thought were hilarious. Senator Chet Brooks, a state senator, once addressed Barbara Jordan and said, Senator, the only thing missing in this portrait is your voice. Without your voice, it just isn't you. Barbara Jordan said in reply, Senators, these walls have been needing a touch of color, and when my painting hangs amid the august people on the walls of this chamber, believe me, it's gonna talk. (laughs) Which I really liked. And then I like this interaction with a reporter. Reporter, Senator Jordan, congratulations on your election to Congress. Barbara Jordan replies, thank you, but that's premature. I still have a Republican opponent in the fall, but since none of you seem to know who he is, I'm not about to tell you his name. Nice. (laughs) So this is a woman who very much knew how to work the press. She knew how to work her colleagues, and it could not have been easy. It could not have been easy to be so other and be so different and to be the first. There's so much burden when you're the first, and she handles it all with so much grace and style and gumption and grit, which is so Texas of her. And she is, thanks very much to the patronage of Lyndon B. Johnson, elected to Congress in 1972. She is the first woman elected in her own right from Texas. There had been some appointed women, wives to fill seats, but she's the first woman who runs and gets elected for Congress from Texas. And she is the first black Texan to be elected to Congress. So again, she's just trailblazing. She's the first African-American woman from the South. Yeah. I mean, Shirley Chisholm, who was the first African-American woman, period, had only been elected four years prior. And she's from New York. Right. The only other black woman at this time was Yvonne Burke, who was from California. So, you know, Barbara Jordan's the third. And as you said, she's the only one from the South. That's incredible to me. And she's 36 when this happens, which is not so young in the grand scheme of life, I say, as I am 36 at this moment. But <laughs> but for Congress, it is young. Um, it I mean, is. Less so back then, but... It's young. young and it's young when you're when you're trailblazing, I think, especially it's a lot. She was carrying so much with her right around this time when she's elected to Congress. Her former colleagues in the Texas State Senate did something pretty remarkable, which is they commissioned a portrait of her for the state house. Literally the year she left the state house. That doesn't happen typically. And I think it's an illustration of 
the esteem that she was held in, even during a time where she was so much the minority in gender and in race, uh, she managed to build such a coalition around her. And this is exactly what she does in Congress. She takes all that skill, political skill that she's honed over really just a short amount of time and brings it to Congress. She gets a very cushy position on the Judiciary Committee, thanks to uh, her good friend, Lyndon B. Johnson, who basically puts pressure on everybody in Congress to make sure she gets on the Judiciary Committee. And this will be key for something that is going to happen while she is in Congress. I wonder, because the Watergate stuff was brewing when she takes office in January of 1973. Like, Watergate's kind of in the groundwater a little and Johnson dies very quickly after she take she becomes a member of Congress. But I'm wondering like if he knew something was coming and then just kinda advocated, I don't know. Or I just wonder if he just was highly suspicious of Nixon. Also that like (laughs) I'm highly suspicious of Uh, Nixon in general. (laughs) Uh no love lost between Johnson and Nixon. So I wonder if Johnson was like, if there's gonna be like a watchdog on Nixon, I want it to be this tough young Texas lawyer who has nothing to lose, really. Yeah, exactly. So she is on the Judiciary Committee. She is already known for her oratory skill. She had been this debater in college, this lawyer, this this politician. She'd really cultivated this voice that was really memorable, but we'll put some videos in the show notes as well. One young woman who was interviewed in the 1970s after her election said, I turned on my television and thought I was listening to God. Barbara Jordan just had an incredible oratory style. One of her fellow congressmen said that her voice sounded like the heavens have opened up. So it's just incredible. And then that skill is going to be put on to display to the entire nation in 1974. She gives this speech in the Judiciary Committee. She gives a 15-minute speech. And it's considered to be one of the greatest speeches in the 20th century. And she talks about the Constitution. And I'm hoping we can get that clip because I can't do this justice. It's really this great speech about my faith in the Constitution is whole. It is complete. It is total. And she goes on to talk about how she thinks that the her faith in the Constitution will lead us out of this mess. And basically, she doesn't come right out and say that Nixon's guilty, but... She very strongly implies that she thinks that Nixon is guilty. And spoiler alert, Nixon was guilty. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not saying that Nixon resigns because of Barbara Jordan's speech. But this speech, for all of the public that is so tuned in, and, you know, there was no, like, you know, the, the news media was very different then than it is today. You didn't have 50 different choices. You know, everybody was watching this woman speak. At this opening of these impeachment, you know, hearings before the Judiciary Committee. And she basically lays out, she almost never says his name. She never accuses him of a crime. She just basically lays out the checks and balances in the Constitution, what the executive power can and cannot do, what the role of the legislature is, why faith in the Constitution is the foundation of our democracy. Uh, I like when she says, I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. Uh, She sees herself and positions herself as a defender of the Constitution. And she says in the speech that Watergate would forever ruin the trust American citizens have in their government. 
which she is correct about. Watergate is such a key moment and I think ties directly to where we are in the 21st century uh, in terms of faith in the institutions and in our government and in the Constitution. This speech makes her a star. She had already been the protege of LBJ. She'd already been well noticed in the party. But this speech makes her huge. And legitimately so. It's electrifying. You just listen to her. She has this great voice and she's a freshman and she's basically like speaking truth to power in the most important way. And just... Yeah, she's like not even 40 yet. She's like just doing this incredible thing. And I mean, she's an African-American woman at a time when you're not... We weren't used to seeing people who looked like her, either gender or racially, on their television in Congress. And she gives this electrifying speech and just calcifies what is going wrong with Watergate and why this is such a big deal. And it is really a phenomenal moment. And she's going to really crystallize for a lot of people who are kind of casual, like, consumers of the news. They see this clip and they're like, whoa, something's not right here. And it definitely is like, it's a little hint of what might have been if there had been an impeachment trial in the House of Representatives. Because you have to imagine she would have played a key role. What might have happened if Nixon hadn't resigned, I think she would have been front and center during that. So she becomes, I mean, this speech just catapults her to another level in her career. Everybody wants her. They want her on every committee. They want her in every organization or group. They want her to fundraise. They want her to travel. They want her to do everything. The Democratic Party is like, let us put you in every working group we have. We want you out there. She is so popular. She's even tossed around very seriously as a potential vice presidential running mate for Jimmy Carter in 1976. So that's a huge deal. We just have Shirley Chisholm at this time making the step of being the first woman to pursue the presidential nomination, the first black woman, sorry, to pursue the presidential nomination. So to have Barbara Jordan's name kicked around as a VP running mate for Carter is really, really big. In 1976, she will not be (laughs) the vice presidential running mate to Jimmy Carter. Sorry, (laughs) that's a history spoiler, but she's not. But she is asked to give the keynote address at the Democratic National Convention. She is the first black woman to do that. She is probably the most popular person there, maybe with the exception of Jimmy Carter, but even then, I think she's more popular than him. If you watch uh, coverage of this Democratic National Convention when she comes out, the crowd, the arena loses its mind, people go nuts. John Glenn, the astronaut, grumbled to people afterwards that he felt overshadowed by her, which, like, he's John Glenn. (laughs) He's a pretty big... Pretty big. He also was a sitting senator at that time. Like, that's amazing. But it's so savvy of the DNC and of the Carter campaign to have her give that keynote address because here she is, sort of the voice of the people, as you said, for a Watergate, kind of representing the case against Nixon and against the Watergate scandal. And so she gets up to promote Jimmy Carter. And it's sort of like saying, that man I was talking about before, the one who's shaken my my faith and everything. This man's not like that. Uh, This man, I believe in. And she says, if there are any patriots left in this country, then I am one. And that just like people just go nuts. And she really uh, helps to kind of kick off Jimmy Carter's campaign uh, at the convention with this electrifying jolt. Not surprisingly, though, with all of this attention, with all of the media and press around her, there are a lot of critics of Barbara Jordan. Uh, There are a lot of people who um, find her too ambitious. There are people who find her too political. She's too good at playing the game, right? 
she gets slapped with the label that I always laugh at, which is establishment. She's the establishment. She's an establishment Democrat. She's not uh, radical enough. She's not liberal enough. She is willing to compromise too often. Uh, she's said to be too self-interested, which again, these are things we very rarely say about men in politics and certainly about white men in politics. What's funny about a lot of that, or to me, like funny, ironic, is that, you know, she's kind of criticized for not being black enough, which I think is something Shirley Chisholm also had to contend with, which I think is just such a reflection of, of gender there. But she votes in line with the Black Caucus on everything. Barbara Jordan never dissents from the Black Caucus with the exception of oil, gas, and energy, which you're a politician from Texas. You want to keep your job. You are going to occasionally vote in favor of things that favor the oil and gas industry, especially at this time. It, it, it is what it is. It be like, you know, being in coal country and voting against coal. It, it just is the business. She also is, you know, accused of being sort of this establishment Democrat because she votes with the party, which is what you're supposed to do. She's also called the black LBJ and not in a good way. But she's seen as too safe, too centrist, too, too moderate. And I think that's so frustrating. It's such a frustrating criticism. Because she's seen, she's going to be seen as, as radical no matter what because of her gender and race. So she has to counterbalance that. And then when she tries to just work hard and work with the party and be bipartisan, she's accused of being too establishment. And she's absolutely, I mean, she is engaged in supporting civil rights legislation. She's engaged in supporting gender-based legislation. She is involved in the convention in Houston for the, the National Year of the Woman. So she does all of these things that support these groups. She's just also good at her job. I feel like we often say somebody is too political or too good of a politician, and we mean it as a negative. We mean it as an insult. Uh, he's such a politician. She's such a politician. But Part of being a politician is to get things done, to know what you have to do to get a bill passed, uh, to get federal funding to your state or your district. That's part of the gig. And being good at that is not necessarily a bad thing and certainly isn't in this era. Now, she's going to retire in 1979 from politics. So if you're kind of keeping track, this is about a 13-year career in politics, not all that long. She's elected 1966 to the state Senate, and she's going to retire in 1979. So it's a relatively short year, um, and it's surprising to people. It's a shock that she retires. Her name had been tossed around to run for a Senate seat, be a Texas senator. There had been talk about cabinet positions, which she would have been excellently suited for things uh, like attorney general or um other, other positions she certainly would have been great at. Uh, her name was even bandied about for presidential run. She did get one vote at the Democratic National Convention in 1976, even though she wasn't a candidate, which makes me wonder, did she vote for herself? Did she just throw a little vote in just to see? But part of the reason she is going to retire is she does have health issues, something that she's very quiet about. She does not often speak publicly, but she had been suffering from multiple sclerosis since 1973. So all of this time, for the most part, that she is in the House of Representatives, she is dealing with MS, and her health really just couldn't hold up to the pace. And I think her own ambition, I don't think she wanted to have a role where she just sat in some congressional seat till she died and, you know, couldn't go anywhere and couldn't advance. So she transitions into teaching. She is going to get a job at the University of Texas in Austin, which, as you may remember, is the same school she couldn't attend when she was a teenager. So I love that. 
And she will remain engaged with Democratic politics. She'll speak again at the 1992 DNC uh, Democratic National Convention as a keynote speaker. By that point, she'll be in a wheelchair for the most part because of the MS. I do think there's another reason, though, that she starts to perhaps pull back politically, and that is because of what's happening in her personal life. Uh, her personal life has been the subject of a lot of speculation. She, it should be said at the outset, never talks publicly about her personal life, ever. She has a longtime companion named Nancy Earl, who was her partner for over 20 years. Uh, they lived together in Austin in a house that they built together, which I just love. They met on a camping trip which I don't camp, so that's fine. And Nancy's going to work for her as a speechwriter, and she's going to be her caregiver when Jordan uh, is suffering from multiple sclerosis. In fact, Nancy saves her life. Uh, at one point for physical therapy, Barbara Jordan is swimming in a pool, and she nearly drowns, uh, and her partner actually is going to be the person who saves her life. There's a lot of speculation, I feel like, about the nature of their relationship. Uh, neither one of them talk about it publicly, but it's one of those, we're pretty sure they were partners. And it also probably would have been a much bigger deal back then than it would be now. I feel oh, like. Absolutely. I feel like yeah. they, she, yeah, she kept closeted for her career. And probably, that's probably part of what shortened it. But I think, to, I feel like today we'd be like, okay, whatever. Yeah, people who knew her and were friendly or in their closer circle have pretty much at this point confirmed that they were partners um, and that Barbara Jordan did face from people who knew her and knew how she was living her life, did get a lot of advice or, you know, influence of you can't ever make this public. If you want to go anywhere, you already have so much that you have to fight against your gender, your race, your, you, you know, you have so much that you have to deal with. Adding this in is going to be too much. And so I, I think that in addition to our health, I think keeping this a secret, the more your kind of national star rises gets harder and harder to do. And mm -hmm. so again, we, we don't have any public confirmation from Nancy Earl or from Barbara Jordan, but from those who knew them both at this point were pretty well confirmed that, that this, this was her life partner and they really did build a life together. And the only real notice Nancy Earl ever gets is that when she saved Barbara Jordan's life, there was quite a bit of press coverage of Barbara Jordan nearly drowning at the time. And she sort of just noted as like friend and colleague. I did find it interesting in the research for this, I listened to Ann Richards' eulogy of her, and she addresses the eulogy to Nancy. Like, she actually, and I watched the, you know, Ann Richards could speak, man. And I watched it, and she actually does address Nancy in the midst of the eulogy. So I feel like it was kind of one of those open secrets. Sorry, this is not funny. It's um, not funny. Uh, Grover the cat just uh, made a little appearance on the pod here. just walking across the keyboard. Hey, Groves. Buddy, you need to go away now. Yes, thank you. Cat of the pod. <laughs> it's a pod cat. <laughs> yeah, pod cat. Um, yeah, I feel like that's... Um, that's pretty explicit, so that, I think, to have yes. Anne, Anne Richards to directly address Nancy. That's pretty, I think, pretty clear. Yes. And Anne Richards, by the way, who's amazing and a badass, and we'll talk about her, she was... Um, Barbara Jordan was her political mentor. And one of the most enduring things I think about when I think about Barbara Jordan is there's this great photograph of the two of them. And I think that's at a political convention. And I don't know the date of the photo. But if you look them both up, you can find it pretty easily. And Ann Richards is talking to her. And Barbara Jordan is doubled over laughing. And it's this sort of like 
when you see politicians laughing most of the time you think to yourself oh they're obviously like doing this for the camera and a lot of the times that they really are but this is really clear unforced sisterhood they're busting a gut like barbara jordan's leaning on ann richards for support and it's just such a beautiful badass moment and it's just so great according to uh the texas history archives at the university of north texas they are most likely at a texas longhorns women's basketball game so that's a uh, university of texas is the longhorns the two of them regularly attended women's basketball games together and they would often sit in the front row behind the benches to support the women's basketball team at ut so um we'll add the photograph into the show notes so you guys can see it but that just cracks me up the two of them just enjoying some women's basketball together what is so tragic for me and I think something I didn't really understand until the last few years is how young Barbara Jordan is when she dies Um, as a kid I remember her death very vividly she was such a big figure in Texas she dies in 1996 at the age of 59 which is really so young and again, yeah, just shy of her 60th birthday. Yeah, and sad. her political career, while so massive, was relatively so short. And there was so much what if of what could have been with her and what those opportunities might have been if the health had allowed. Um, she had been awarded two years before her death the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Bill Clinton. Clinton said later after her death that he would have nominated her to the Supreme Court if it had not been for her health. In addition to multiple sclerosis, she spent the last several years of her life battling leukemia and actually dies from pneumonia from the leukemia that she's she's dealing with. So it's sort of amazing to think like if she had been in better health could she have been a Supreme Court justice? Could she have been a, a cabinet secretary? There's so many things. Her legacy is pretty vast and wide. She's been given about every honorary degree you can imagine. She has a bunch of medals and awards, every hall of fame that exists in this area. She's a part of it. Every city in Texas has a school named for her. There's like a Barbara Jordan school all over the state. Lots of post offices and things are named for her. She's very, I think, well represented uh, in the state of Texas in terms of her legacy. She once said of herself, I am neither a black politician nor a female politician, just a politician, a professional politician. Which again, we often think of that word with such a negative connotation today, but I think she means it in the purest sense of somebody who studied political science, someone who sees the law behind our constitution and our institutions and trying to use politics for the greater good. She believed in sort of LBJ's vision of the great society, and I think she saw politics as a means to an end to that. Um, so I love, I love that way she thinks of herself. I also love this quote about being a Texan because it, it sort of aligns with how I feel. But she says, Texas frequently evokes images of conservatism, oil, gas, racism, callousness. In my judgment, these myths should be debunked or at the least should include the prevalent strains of reasonableness, compassion, and decency. And I love that because I do think there's an image when you think Texas politician and Barbara Jordan doesn't always fit that. But she is, I think, just as representative, if not more so, of the spirit of Texas and what it means to be a Texan. You know, when I think Texas politics, I think Ann Richards and, and Barbara Jordan being the women that I sort of admired growing up. Yes, I Listen, I come from the Northeast. We have our very we have very different opinions of Texas. I love the idea that Ann Richards and Barbara Jordan are like the vanguard leading Texas towards a new future. That's my hope. 
Barbara Jordan today is buried at Texas State Cemetery. It's in Austin. It is basically Arlington National Cemetery for Texas. There are rules to be buried at the Texas State Cemetery. <laughs> I had never heard of this place. Again, not from Texas. Texas is very special. I had never special. heard of this place. And I was like doing research in it. It's, the first thing I read was that she was the first African-American woman to be buried in this cemetery. And I was like, what kind of cemetery is this? And then I realized, oh, okay, it's that kind of cemetery. Like, it's Yeah, it's deal. basically like Arlington National Cemetery. There's requirements to be buried at the Texas State Cemetery. There are people, mostly past governors, members of Congress from Texas, defenders at the Battle of San Jacinto are buried there. Stephen F. Austin's buried there. A lot of really important, notable Texans. So she is the first black person, and she's one of just a handful of women who are buried there, not as spouses, but as actual like office holders, which is really important. So if you go to Austin, Texas State Cemetery is actually really interesting. Um, cool. It's like Arlington to me. There's just like really cool, interesting people laid to rest there, and it's very well-maintained and really lovely. That's Barbara Jordan. She's just phenomenal. So interesting. She's such a trailblazer. And I know she would have hated that. She would have hated that we're acknowledging her for sort of all of these firsts. But like we've been saying in each of these episodes, I think it's so important to acknowledge that because the timeline on this is relatively short. She was the first Mm -hmm. not that long ago. Um, We're really only talking about 60 years ago. And so we've come so far in a short amount of time. And yet she had to work so hard and and kind of break so much new ground. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. I feel like Barbara Jordan is one of those people that, you know, when you say that you stand on the shoulders of people who came before you, like our foremothers, I feel like she's one of them. Like she absolutely is uh, one of those people that sort of made it possible for women, for African-Americans and for particularly African-American women to take places of power, positions of power all over the country. Absolutely. And yes, now doing this, I know we're going to have to do Ann Richards at some point. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I just yeah, yeah, yeah. So thank you guys so much. Thank you to our listeners. Uh, Rebecca already mentioned our important promo. I just want to take a moment to thank our listeners, though. You guys have been so great. I, in the last week, we've gotten incredible comments from people on our YouTube channel. If you haven't checked out Free Tours by Foot YouTube channel, we have virtual tours. We have a lot of really cool content, not just from DC, but all across the United States and Europe. But thank you to Samwise Jordan for shouting us out and saying how much he loves the podcast. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank Martina and John who reached out just to say that they love the podcast so much and they were both talking about it so much they decided they had to listen individually as opposed to together so they could all be on, they could both be on top of what's happening. So we really love you guys. Every time you reach out and send us an email or a tweet uh, or anything, it just means the world to us. Uh, If you're not engaging with us on social media, try it. It's fun. Um, Instagram and Facebook at Tour Guide Tell All. Twitter at Tour Guide Tell. We often workshop like possible uh, episode ideas uh, on our Twitter. Rebecca is also known for her fiery history threads, which are kind of like mini episodes in Twitter form. So be sure to be following along. And if you have ideas, you can always pitch the pod, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We just want to hear from you and we so appreciate you. Yes. And if you want to become a patron, we have a, a Patreon page, Tour Guide Tell All, and the you can and we can vote for the first ladies. It's very exciting. Uh, we're so grateful to all our patrons. You guys help keep the lights on. Please leave us reviews and talk to us. We love to engage with our listeners. And thank you guys so very much. Next week, we are going to finish African American History Month. Next week, Cannon will be talking about Eugene Ballard, who 
is a really, I think, not as well-known as he should be military hero from Georgia. There have been a few little, like, viral, I feel like, Facebooky posts about him that have gone around for Black History Month. Candon's going to give you all the good juice, which will be great. We haven't heard from Candon in a few weeks. So you're going to get all the good background on Eugene Ballard. And then we're just a few weeks away from Women's History Month. So we're going to just merge right on in to women's history, talking about some really interesting women, some scandalous women. We're going to talk about labor. We're going to talk about Native women. We're just going to get into it. It's going to be really exciting. So we will see you next time. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Bye. I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, editing, the admin. Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time.